0: You, know that. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. Ephesians chapter 3. I'm looking at verses 14 through 21 this morning. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 to 21 with a message entitled, The Christian's Identity to Know Christ and to Make Him Known. A Christian's Identity to Know Christ and to Make Him Known. Let me pray before we dive into God's Word this morning. Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning, that you would get me out of the way, that your word would go forth in power, in conviction, with great love and truth. Holy Spirit, come and do what only you can do, awaken affection, stir hearts, inspire, equip, strengthen, break chains, bring salvation in this place this morning. Do this through the preaching of the word, now, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. You know, I believe that every issue from the Christian life, every issue that can arise in the Christian life comes back to one topic, one reality. Every issue, every sin that you might fall into, every, everything that might go wrong in the Christian life, I believe it all comes down to one issue. I'm going to make an argument for this this morning, and that issue, I would argue, is your identity as a follower of Christ. It it all comes down to identity. Let me give you a couple examples. Imagine a a Christian father and a Christian husband who, who is failing as such maybe extreme things like infidelity or abuse or just complacency as a father not, not being devoted to his wife and raising his children. I would argue that the, the reason why he's failing, where, where he got off track and why, why he's messing up is because he's failing to know and to take hold of his identity as a Christian husband and father. He's failing to see that his Role his identity as a Christian husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church, to lay down his life and put her needs above his own, to be the priest of his home and point his wife towards Jesus, to wash her with the water of the Word and lead her to Jesus. He's failing to see and take hold of his identity, um, or as a father, he's failing to see that his role as a father is to lead his family to Jesus, to lead his kids. To Jesus, to not provoke them to anger, but to raise them up in the way that they should go so that when they are older, they will not depart from it. He is the spiritual leader of his home. He fails because he fails to see, to know, and to take hold of his identity as a Christian father and husband. He fails to see that it's who he is, not just a good idea, but who he is. Or take the Christian employee, for example, the Christian employee who's failing, who is always having issues at work, always issues with people, never finding any joy in the workplace. Or take it to the extreme, they're blowing their witness in the workplace because of their integrity, a lack thereof. They're failing as a Christian employee. The reason is because they fail to see And to know and to take hold of that their identity as a Christian employee is to work hard with their hands, to labor well, to glorify God through their actions, to preach the gospel with their life, with their integrity, with their work ethic, and also ready on their lips to share that their workplace is their mission field. Not just a good idea, not just a better reality, it's who they are. And you see, when they fail, when, you, when, when sin creeps in, when issues come in and complacency comes into the Christian life, it's because Christians fail to see, to know, to take hold of who they are, their identity Ask Christians, imagine with me how ridiculous it would be for the best pianist of all time, the best piano player of all time, to say, uh, "I'm stay there alive today, and the best who ever lived, both in God-given talent and musical ability and genius mind to write and compose the greatest music ever written, say they're like, you know what, I'm done with this piano thing, and I just want to go into full-time basket weaving. Now, I'm not knocking on basket weaving, and maybe it's not the best example, but that would be ridiculous. Like, okay, do that on the side, but, like, don't withhold from the world your God-given amazing talent. Or, Or picture how ridiculous it would be to be in the supermarket, and you're checking out your groceries. You get to the front of the line, and standing there checking out the groceries is a firefighter fully decked out in uniform. Helmet, gloves, boots, hose slung over the shoulder, coat, everything, axe attached to the belt, fully decked out fully dressed up in their uniform and they're checking out groceries. That'd be weird, right? That's not who that firefighter is. Take that analogy to another level and say there's a fire across the street and you see the fire and you're like, dude, go put out the fire. You're a firefighter. And he's like, no, I, gotta, I got like seven people in mind. I got to check these people out. Get done. You, you would be shocked. You would be annoyed. You would maybe even be angered by that. It's ridiculous. We don't, we don't train you. We don't put hours, weeks, years of training for this firefighter to have the know-how and the physical strength to run into that fire and to put it out to save someone who might be in it. That would be ridiculous. It's not who he is. Nothing wrong with checking out groceries, but that's not who that guy is. It's ridiculous. Yet, how many Christians do the exact same thing with their actions? How many Christians who talk the talk... Who go to work, uh, go to church, who wear Christian t-shirts? Someone's looking down. I shouldn't have worn my Christian t-shirt today. Who, who have Christian stickers on their cars? Who perhaps even serve in ministry, and yet their life does not back up what they say at all. They fail to tap into, to know, to see, and to take hold of their main identity as children of God, as followers. Of Jesus Christ. Our main identity, I will argue from our text this morning, is to know him and to make him known. A desperate seeking of the face of God and an undying passion to spread his gospel. A desperate seeking of the face of God and an undying passion to spread his gospel. Does this define your life? Does this define your life? as a follower of Christ, because it is the only right response. It is the only logical response to what we claim as Christians, that the God of the universe has come into our life and raised us spiritually from the dead, made us new creations, now lives inside of us. The God who spoke galaxies into existence now lives in us. If we claim that, if we are are saying that that's true of our lives, then our lives better back it up. It is the only right response. It is the only logical response. It is our identity as Christians to know him and to make him known. The book of Ephesians is written to believers from the Apostle Paul to a group of believers in Asia Minor who failed to see all that they had and all that they are in Christ and therefore failed to live a life worthy of that calling. They failed to see and know and grab and take hold of all that they are and all that they have in Christ and therefore fail then to live a life worthy of that calling. In chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Ephesians, Paul lays out all of the amazing truths of our salvation, who we are, what God has done for us, how we're saved, all of the amazing glorious truths of the Bible that we have because of our salvation, that we are chosen, adopted, forgiven, redeemed, sealed by the Holy Spirit, of inheritance in heaven waiting for us that is imperishable and no one can take it away. All the amazing truths of the gospel, that's chapters 1 through 3. And then the second three chapters, chapters 4 through 6, is how to live then. In light of that calling, Chapter Four begins: live in a way worthy, a life worthy of the calling that has been placed on you in light of all the truths, in light of all that you have and all that you are. you better live a certain way. The high schoolers know this i 've been saying it a lot, um, and repetition can be the best form of teaching. Repetition can be the best form of teaching i 've been saying this a ton, so it 's going to be new it 's not going to be new to you high schoolers, but the book of Ephesians, you can compare it to like a car manual. Chapters 1 through 3 is describing the engine, the impressive piece of machinery that it is, all the facets, all the components that make it the amazing machine that it is, describing it, chapters 1 through 3. Then chapters 4 through 6 is like the roadmap, where you can take the car, where you should take the car with all of its potential, how fast you can drive it and where you should go. That's chapters 4 through 6, of course, in a comparison of the Christian life, well, Chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, the little passage I have you turn to this morning, is a little section that I would like to say is the turn the power on section in the car manual. Here's the engine, here's where you should go, but here's how to turn the power on in the Christian life. And if Ephesians is all about living in the fullness of our identity as children of God, as followers of Christ, then this section, this passage before us this morning, is the key. This passage is the key to walking in the fullness of the Christian life. And I will argue that this passage can be summed up by this statement, to know Christ, to make him known. This is our identity as believers. And it's more than just teaching about this, though. It's going to tell us, it's going to unlock the key to how to walk in that fullness, okay? So let's dive into God's Word now, Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. I love this passage of Scripture. I'm excited, and we can't break it all down. We're going to really focus in on verse 17, but let me read it for you this morning. Here's what the Word of God says. For this reason, I bow my knees, verse 14, before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the length, the height, the depth, the width. And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, and be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly far abundantly above all we could ask or even imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever amen amen. As you may have noticed, this passage of scripture is a prayer. And you can think of it with what I just said and see it for yourself, don't just believe me. It's the prayer from Paul and how to turn the power on in the Christian life. How to turn the car on and put it in drive and start actually walking and living this thing we claim called Christianity. He begins in verse 14 by saying, for this reason. Well, what reason is that? I would argue that's everything he said before. Chapters 1 through 3, all that we have and all that we are that he's been laboring to show us in chapters 1. 1 through 3, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family on heaven and earth is named. He's emphasizing the Father here. The Trinity is powerfully on display in this passage. I don't really have time to break all this down but point is it's a prayer and prayer Paul prays beginning in verse 16 now the first part of the prayer that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. The first key to unlocking our identity as believers, to walking in the fullness of the Christian life, or rather, I would say it's kind of the key to the key, verse 16, verse 17, we're gonna see this really the key, I'm gonna argue. Verse 16, the key to the key is you gotta acknowledge that there is nothing in your own strength that you can do. Notice the wording, notice the emphasis on the power of God in verse 16, that according to the riches of His glory, that He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit. The the spiritual strength that Paul is praying for, for the Ephesian believers, for us here today, we could say as well, is a strength that we cannot manufacture in our own strength whatsoever. In your own strength, you don't even have a chance. You can't even get a shred of this going in your own strength. God would say in his word, It's not by might, nor by power, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. In our own strength, to get this spiritual strength that we need as believers to walk in the fullness of the Christian life, we cannot produce it at all. It is all by God's power. It is all out of his source. Notice that word, according to the riches of his power, according to the riches of his glory, rather. It's out of what source? It's out of how much glory God has. How much glory does God have? An infinite amount. The source we're pulling from, from the spiritual, for the spiritual strength is an unlimited, never-ending amount of God's power because it's not us So the first key to unlocking walking in the fullness of the Christian life is to recognize that you cannot do it on your own. There is nothing you have in and of yourself, and you don't stand a chance in this world with our enemy, with the flesh, with all the pull of this world. You don't stand a chance in your own strength. But through God's strength, through God's power, through His Spirit, Oh, you can shake the darkness. You can move mountains. You can see God move in such powerful and radical ways. You can conquer any sin. You can overcome any trial, not in your own strength, but by the power of God, the first key, or rather I like to say the key to the key in walking in the fullness of the Christian life is to recognize that you can't do it and then to cry out to God for his Strength. That's verse 16. But here's the key now. The thought continues. The prayer continues. I want you to see it. Verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So that Christ, strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is the key to walking in the fullness of the Christian life. Now, at first sight, that phrase, and however your version puts it in verse 17, that phrase might look like it's saying you need to get saved. Oh, except Jesus in your heart. Okay, thanks, preacher. That's good. Um, the key to the Christian life is getting saved. Makes sense. Okay, let's go home now, right? No, he's not talking about salvation here. And, and, and I'll tell you why. Because he's talking to believers all the way through. It would not make sense for Paul to start praying for these believers and then stop in the middle and be like, oh, yeah, and I pray that you get saved. It's not what he's talking about in verse 17. The Greek word here for dwell means to take up residency in your heart. It it, it means that Christ comes in and is comfortable in your heart. To take up residency, to dwell, and to be comfortable in your heart. This is what the Greek word for dwell means. Here, therefore, is what I believe Paul is saying. The key to walking in the fullness of the Christian life, and it's only going to come by God's strength and by God's power, is that Christ is comfortable in every part of your heart. There's this little book by a man named Robert Munger called My Heart, Christ's Home. Robert Munger, a little book called My Heart, Christ's Home. And he draws an allegory of a Christian and a Christian life and a person's heart being like a house. And he talks about how when Jesus first comes into a life, he comes to the house and he starts checking out the house. Okay, that means they're a Christian. Jesus is now in the house. And the first place that Jesus goes is he goes into the library. He goes into the library because the library, like the brain, it's where information is stored. You can think of it like the control room of the house, the control room of the heart. Jesus goes into the library and he clears off all the shelves, all of the stuff that was there, all of the human philosophies and the the secular worldviews that once dominated our life. He throws it off the shelf and a whole bunch of neutral stuff as well. He takes everything off and he puts one book on the shelf and that's his word. God's word is now the guide to our life. That's the first place that Jesus goes in the house of the human heart, the Christian heart. Then Jesus goes to the dining room. The dining room is the place of the appetites, the place of desire, where we eat, where we feast, right? Jesus goes into the dining room and there's a secular menu, a worldly menu there were all the things of the old life that we used to feed on, that we used to delight in and indulge in, thinking that we found satisfaction and pleasure in them, and really they were just destroying our lives and making us miserable. Jesus goes in there, throws out the old menu, and puts a new menu on, and this is his will and his presence. Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. His presence now is more satisfying than anything this world has to offer Next, Jesus goes into the living room. The living room is where you live, right? It's where you dwell. It's where you enjoy relationships, kind of the center of life in the home. Jesus goes into the living room and he sits down, and this is where he now lives. Before the Christian life, Jesus was not welcome in the living room. He wasn't welcome in your life, but now he is the guest of honor and the owner of the home. But here is where Christians many Christians go wrong. Jesus has taken control of the library. Jesus has the dining room. Jesus is in the living room, but he's not comfortable. This is what Robert Munger argues and breaks down. He's not comfortable in the living room. Why is that? Why is he not comfortable? Because there's this stench coming from a closet door that's shut you know, like a, like a terrible, terrible stench, like when, like, meat juice leaks underneath the fridge. You don't know it's there. It's, like, stinks up. Well, I was, one time, I, I was house-sitting. Um, it was actually from one of the pastors here. I'm not going to name any names, but uh, he's white, and he used to be a principal, but I'm not naming any names, and uh, I was house-sitting for this pastor, and uh, you know when you're house-sitting for someone, you're, like, hypersensitive to anything going wrong. You, like, if you go to the bathroom there, you like flush the toilet four times, less like the plumbing clog and like the house get off. Maybe that's just me or you. you. water the plants like five times a day, less like they all die. And you're like, it's my fault. You're like hypersensitive to all that. So anyway, I'm house sitting and a couple of days in the, the smell starts to develop in the house. And I'm like, oh, no, like, um, what did I do, you know? Did I not, like, do something right? And I'm looking everywhere. I, I take out the trash, and I, like, clean the trash. And, and I'm like, okay, I open the windows. It goes away a little bit. And, and I'm staying there, so I go to bed. and I wake up in the morning, and it's, it's like, terrible. The smell is, like... Terrible, And I'm like, what? what is going on? What did I do? I'm like cleaning things. I'm like going through the whole house, checking. And I'm thinking there's like a dead animal like stuck somewhere that's like just stinking up the whole house. So finally, I open up the oven. And in the oven, I mean, I get hit with this blast of like the worst smell I've ever smelled in my life. And, and in there, there was this meat dish, um, meat and gravy that had been sitting there for like days. And it was like swarming with maggots. And I'm like... And and I I clean it out, and and I'm like I wrap my towel around my face, and I like throw everything away, and I clean out the oven. It it was terrible, and I, I couldn't be comfortable in their house until I got that out. Jesus, Jesus is in the house, but but. There's this closet door. There's this compartment in the house that's, that's blocked off. And, and you say he's, he's the owner. You say he's the guest of honor. And he's sitting there. How, how can he be comfortable with a smell like that? People may say, people may say Jesus, you, you take it all. I, I've given you the library. I've given you the dining room. I've given you everything. But, but there's this one closet. This is mine. This is mine. You can have everything else. But you can't have this. Brothers and sisters, that's not how it works. Jesus cannot be comfortable in that home when you have that one little closet, that, that, that thing full of, of the hidden little things that no one knows about, the secret sins, the things that you're holding on to, the dead things, evil things, and, and it's just... Stinks and the smell is coming out. Jesus cannot be comfortable in your heart as long as that door is shut. Jesus, have it all except for this one closet. This one's mine. Jesus says, No, I want that closet too. Open the door, son. Open the door, daughter. Open it up. I will come in. I will clean it out. I will break every chain. I will heal every wound. I will restore. I will mend. I will heal. I will do what only I can do. You just need to open the door. It's the key, the key to walking in the fullness of the Christian life. is to surrender every part of your heart. I think where people go wrong, where Christians go wrong, they're not walking their identity. is because they got that one closet door shut. They're holding on to something. They haven't let Christ in and taken hold of everything. And until you do that, Christ can't work the way he wants to. But when you do, notice what will happen, what Paul says, continuing in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, may take up residency, may be comfortable in every part of your heart so that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. When Christ is comfortable in your heart, when Christ has ownership of every room, then you will be rooted and grounded in love, notice as the text says, Love will now just pour out of your life. The love that Jesus has poured into your heart will now pour out into the world and into the lives of those around you. And then notice you'll be strengthened for what? What's the purpose? What's the goal of man? What's the chief end of man? To know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, not a mere intellectual understanding of the love of God. Oh yeah, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe that. Intellectually, it makes sense. No, a surpassing the intellect, heart experience of a love of God. It surpasses knowledge. It is immeasurable, this love. And when you experience that love, all Christ comes in and he changes everything about you. Christ comes in and transform your life and you cannot help but live for him. You cannot help but be a sold out follower of Jesus who is desperately seeking the face of God and has an undying passion to spread his gospel. Have you experienced that in here this morning? And do you experience this love? It's not a one-time thing. As one song, worship song puts it, it's an everyday kind of love. Do you open God's word and let this love and this knowing Christ every time just, just wake you up and stir your affections and inspire you to live for him? Do you do that? Do you experience his love on a daily basis? Do you seek his face? Do you walk in your identity as a believer? Or is it just kind of this thing you do? You come to church. It's just, it's what I do. Am I say I'm a Christian? I, I do the right things. I live a pretty moral life. You're missing the point. The point is to know the love of Christ. Christ. This is what you were made for. This is what you were made for. To know the love of Christ. And maybe you're here and you're saying, you know, Dane, like, I, I, I do all these things I read my Bible, I, I, I come, I, I, do th- I do this, but I, I don't seem to experience what you're talking about. Where the love of God just comes in and takes hold of your life and transforms me. I, I don't seem to experience what you're saying. I'll tell you on the authority of God's word, not my opinion. It's because you've got that door shut still. It's because you got that closet door shut. You're holding on. And may I speak to this for a moment? May i preach for a moment here. You know what I think the two main things, two categories of what people keep in that shut door. One, one is some kind of secret sin indulging in some fleshly desire that you just don't want to give up. Some kind of indulgence of the flesh that you don't want to give up. The, the other thing, if I may say, is bitterness and unforgiveness. I think there's a two main categories of what we keep locked away our closets. Like Jesus have it all except this one thing. Let me speak to each of these for a moment. As far as secret sin and indulging in the flesh If you're a true Christian here, you're probably not saying, no, I I don't want to give it up, you know, you can have everything else, because that's not really a true Christian, right? That's what John talks about. That's not evidence that you're even a true believer. If you, like, don't even want to fight this in your life, John would say, you lie, and you don't practice the truth. But what I think, rather, the mindset more for the believer who's harboring that sin is, is something along the lines like this. Dane, you don't know, you don't know how far I've gone into this. You don't know how much this grips my life. I can't break it. I've tried everything. I can't break this. I can't get this addiction out of my life. You don't know how far it goes. You're right, I don't know. But Jesus does. We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, who is tempted in every way, just like us, yet without sin. He knows, he sees it all, he overcame, and he knows even the depths of how far you've gone. And he doesn't look at you and condemn you. He looks at you in love and says, give it to me. Open the door. Let me in. I will heal. I will restore. Just let me in. And and what opening the door looks like, I believe, is, is taking the actual steps to fight that sin in your life to cut it off, whatever the cost, to get accountable, to expose it, to get people around you to help you fight it, to take the proper necessary steps to overcome it. That's what opening the door looks like. And Christ won't condemn you. He will love you. He will heal. He will forgive. Just open the door. Over here, bitterness and unforgiveness. I think it's such a common thing. And we just... The week before last, we were in a high school summer retreat, and I was really seeking the Lord. God, give me the right thing to say, to speak to your people. And this is what he kept putting on my heart. How many lives do bitterness and unforgiveness destroy and consume? Solid believers love God. He's got control of the home. But they're holding on to this bitterness and this unforgiveness. It's also a door that's shut. It's also a door. A stench that is oozing out that Jesus cannot be comfortable until you let him in and that's all you got to do he says open the door you might say Dane you don't know what I've been through you don't know the hurt that has been caused to me you don't know what this person has done for me I can never forgive them you're right I don't know but Jesus does he was there every step of the way He was with you he hurt with you he carried you through that he knows every tear you've cried every scar he sees it all and he looks at you and says open the door open the door i'll come in i'll heal i'll restore i'll give you the strength to forgive even your worst of enemies and all the freedom that will come to your life when you do that open the door let him in, and you will begin to experience the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You will begin to be filled with the fullness of God. Lastly, in verses 20 and 21, that part I would say that's knowing Christ. Here's now making him known. Verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly above all we could ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. When Christ is comfortable in your Heart, when he has access to every room, you begin to experience the love of Christ in ways that you cannot even begin to describe. He transforms you. You know what he does next? He begins to use you in ways you thought not possible. The last room that Jesus goes into in our little allegory, our little book that we talked about, is the workshop. And in the workshop, he finds, as the book goes, a beautiful workbench and these amazing tools with so much potential, but all they're being used for is to make toys and trinkets. Toys that don't really have any lasting purpose and value, trinkets that have really no purpose and value. That's all they're being used for before Christ. But when Christ is comfortable, when he comes in and takes hold of everything, he can go into that workshop and he can begin to use you in ways you could not even imagine. Let me close with this story. And I share this right not, not to like build myself up, of course, right? But this shows how, how little it is to do with any of us, and it, it's God's work in us when we simply yield our life to him. I remember when I was in college, and, and I led this little Bible study on campus. Five, ten people would come out, and just did it for a couple years, small group. We'd print out a passage description scripture and reread it. Remember one time, the night before our Bible study on campus, um, me and my buddy were praying in the car, just praying over our campus. God just Give us a burden for the lost. Draw many, save so many souls. There's so many people here who do not know you and are living in darkness. God, just use us. And Would you use us tomorrow? Use our little Bible study to bring someone to you, a simple little prayer of faith. The next day, we're in our Bible study, and there's this girl that's standing right around where we're sitting, huge campus, right? Over 40,000 people, and she's standing right there and she's looking over, and, and, and like we're doing our Bible study. Finally, I invite her over. Hey, why don't you come join us? She sits down. She's quiet. We're doing our Bible study. She interrupts us. She says, two days ago, I was in the hospital. I, I tripped out. I didn't take my medicine, and it tripped me out. I, I, I blacked out. I apparently threatened to kill my sister, this sweet young girl, and I, I tried to take my own life. I wake up in the hospital, and I'm under watch. They said I'm going to be in here for weeks. And I cried out to God. She was Buddhist before. She said, God, if you're real, get me out of here and reveal yourself to me. Yesterday, the doctor came in. We're letting you go. Supernaturally, that was the first answered prayer. Today I came here because I used to go to school here. I didn't know what else to do. I found you guys. I believe this is the answer to the second prayer. Tell me about your God. And I'm sitting there. And I'm thinking, God, really? Like, you could you? I have nothing to offer. I I mean, I I can't even write that script. I can't even imagine something like that. And you would use me like that? Nothing that I had. A couple years later, I get a call from a friend, the friend that was in that Bible study that kind of took this girl in and began to mentor her and in her walk with God and her faith. I get a call from my friend. She said, this girl, the one I just told you about, she's at Planned Parenthood right now. She got pregnant and one of her friends is really pushing her to get an abortion. She called me as kind of a last resort and wants me to come and just be with her. And so I'm praying for my friend. She's going over the Planned Parenthood. She tells him what happens. She sits down, and she just sits next to her, just holds her hand and, and just prays, God, don't let her make this decision. God, please spare this child. The doctor comes out with her other friends sitting there pushing this girl to have her abortion. The doctor comes out, and this girl gets up and walks out with my friend. And now she has a beautiful child. Like, God, you would do that. It's not us. It's nothing we have to offer. But when you yield your life, when you walk in the fullness of your identity as a child of God, he will use you in ways you thought not possible. And to him be the glory. In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for us, God, the love that chases us down, that never stops pursuing us, even when we push you out, even when we keep those closet doors shut. God, you still, the perfect gentleman, just stand there and pursue us and Just say, let me in, I will take, I will heal, I will restore. God, thank you for your love. Thank you for the gospel that saves us from our sin and makes us new creations. God, thank you that we can walk in the fullness of our identity. And it is simple as surrender. Jesus, take it all. Jesus, it's all yours. We want to know you. We want to know your love. And we want to be used by you to shake the darkness, to be kingdom builders, disciple makers, world changers for your glory. Would you fill us in this place? Would you do a work in our hearts? Would you inspire? Would you equip us, God, as we leave this place, God? May we be now your witnesses, your lights, city upon a hill that need not be ashamed. And we would go forth, God, and we would shake the darkness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand for lesson.